You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Well, part of it was that um, my definition of success was flawed. And I was basing success on outcomes rather than processes. So that was the first problem, is that to me, I was only successful if I was achieving another thing. And part of the challenge was that because I was so achievement oriented, after one thing was finished, I just wanted to move on to the next thing because there was always an overlap of things anyway. So there wasn't even time to say, ah, job well done. That actually went the way we hoped. It was like, okay, I'm 20% on on the next thing. Let's go. And so when your professional identity and personal identity are intertwined, you're in dangerous territory because you start to feel like the outcomes of your work are the outcomes of you. And that when something does not go well, it's because you're not okay. There must be something wrong with you. Now you're digging into your childhood. Like, yeah, cause this is just like when I was in first grade and Miss Morris said, and so, uh, I was just on that treadmill and I, I had not yet understood a few different things. One that If I wake up in the morning and give it my best and I move my body and I hydrate and I love on the people I care about and I move 1% closer to being a better version of myself, then I've won the day. My version of winning had to completely change. That was Lisa Nicole Bell, a writer and host of the Behind the Brilliance podcast. In today's episode, we discussed why she walked away from an investor and how that later turned into her selling her business, how her burnout led her to rethink time management, how we've both been challenged to prioritize what matters most, and the awkwardness of being successful members of underestimated groups. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Lisa, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. This is our second conversation, actually, you had me on yours. Um, we'll link up in the show note, um, show notes, and I'm guessing we're going to be in multiple conversations on whatever platforms we show up. Thanks so much for joining me today for your first time here on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. I am so honored to be here. Thank you for having me, Charlie. All righty. So we've been chatting up in the green room, and like I said, um, we have two podcast hosts which means we can go a lot of different directions <laughs> and have a lot of different fun here. But really what I wanted to start a little bit is, is pulling um, our readers into your journey. Cause I think it's a really fascinating journey, how you've navigated, pivoted, transformed, elevated, returned all the different things that you've done um, in there. And one of the features that I would love for us to call out is that your acquisition for a company. Cause well, first off, um, or selling your company and, and going on that journey. And that puts you in a a small percentage of people who have done that journey. So first off, congratulations. I didn't tell you that last time. Thank you. <laughs> but it also gives you a vantage point that not many creators have, right? Mm, yeah. 
Um, so pull us in. Tell us that story of, um, you know, sort of the elevator version of there to here. Sure. So um, I started my first company when I was in college. I was 19. Um, we were in the standardized test prep and education space. I grew that company and the acquisition came about because I was actually offered investment capital. And I knew that if I took it, it would mean national expansion, 60 hours a week, doubling down. Like I would have to really lock in and this would be my thing for the next five to 10 years. And I did some soul searching and was like, I don't want to do that. I've always been the type of person who um, is not either or, I'm both and. And I would also consider myself mentally ambidextrous in that I like to be doing multiple things. I like structure and type A and hard problems, but I also like free thinking and creativity and fun. And so um, I I just was very candid with them and said, I I don't want to do this for the next 10 years. So I'm going to hold off on taking your capital because I'm not sure what I want to do next. And they said, well, why don't we just buy the company? And, you know, after some exchanges, the deal made sense. And so that's, that's what happened. Um, And, and after that, it was interesting because I thought, well, this is fantastic. I can sleep until 12 and eat pancakes and do whatever I want to do. And and for a while, that was the case. Um, but when we think about early retirement, the thing is you got to have something to retire to. Um, and so my career since then has been like, well, what else do you want to do? What's interesting to you? And I think a lot of times folks are just like, when you read someone's career story, they're telling you the intensely abbreviated version. And I'm one of those people who's willing to show people all the false stops and dead ends and cul-de-sacs and (laughs) finding the journey, because I think it's important for folks to see that. I appreciate that. Um, And that actually gives us so much fodder to start with, because, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me of Dan Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, of those of us who are whole-minded, right? Yes. Um, Or, you know, some people call us slashies, you know, whether they're creative giants. We have all sorts of names, Renaissance Souls, Multipotentialized, like. Yes. (laughs) And about this group of people, of which I'm also one, it's like, it can be so mystifying for other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's like, why don't you just do the thing? And it's like, well, let's talk about the thing. Right. Let's talk about why we do the work we do, mm-hmm. not necessarily the work that we do. Yes. Right. Um, and I'm guessing you're like most of us where like there's a part of you that craves the simplicity of being one minded or the other. Right. Right. Of like, if I could just do the thing, my life would be so much simpler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think being a polymath seems risky to people. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you need to focus and and just do one thing. But I think there's two misconception, misconceptions about it. One is that if you do one thing, if you find a job at one place and you only do one thing, you'll have stability. To me, that is the most unstable position you can be in. Because just on a more tactical level, in most states in the, in the West, um, employment is at will. Which means that if your employer wakes up Tuesday, decides for whatever reason, with cause or without, that they don't want you around anymore, you're out. And now your source of income, and in many cases, your source of identity validation has been taken from you by someone else. And so I'm not even necessarily opposed to people doing one thing. I just believe in doing it in an empowered way. So there's that. Um, But I think the other thing is that you can be multidisciplinary 
and singularly focused. So there's this idea that if you're going to be a scientist, you want to be a good scientist, you can only do science. Even though when we look at people who are top performers, consistently they are drawing best practices from fields that have nothing to do with their discipline. So I think you have to ask yourself how much you're willing to allow your curiosity to enrich your craft. And if you do that, you kind of inevitably become a polymath because eventually you stumble on something you think is interesting and you may or may not decide to monetize that, but it informs and colors your work in a way that helps you to stand out from the competition. I'm so glad you mentioned that because the top 10%, 5%, whatever top tier we're talking about, inevitably are spanners, right? Or poly or polymaths, right? Where yep. they're drawing in other fields. And we live in an age where like, if you think that you could be successful beating Wikipedia, you're wrong. Right. <laughs> right? We live in an age where we need more synthesis to, that can pull different things together because there's so much information that we need meaning makers and storytellers and things like that. And to do that well, you have to span, right? And so that's the risky thing, though. Like, I think for... A certain amount of folks growing up or what, who grew up sort of from like 1950 to maybe 90, right? Specialization was what you needed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who have grown up in a career world after that, I talk about it as being pro- like we live in project world. We don't live in career world anymore right? exactly. where your life is defined yep. in five to 10 year projects. Mm-hmm. And then once those projects are done – they inevitably open some other door or kick you out of a door, right? Kick you out of a room and there you are on the next project. Like most of us intuitively know that's the world we live in, right? Yeah. I mean, even the the career advice is like, don't stay in one position more than three years or five years because you won't get the title bump. You won't get the pay bump. I mean, we, we know that. Um, but I also think that if we pay attention, even in corporate environments, you know, the people who are getting those promotions and accelerating their careers are often people who um, are bringing some type of dynamic quality that they developed somewhere else. Um, so I completely agree with everything you're saying. It's interesting is I, I thought, given my start in the career world, right, or in, in a career, I came from a military background and actually came from a philosophy background, right? Mm-hmm. But thinking more that like, the military was closer to the real world than academia was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's true. I think they're equally far away from the real world. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But they're their own things for sure. They're their own beast. Um, but it was just like, yeah, what do you mean? Like people don't rotate through positions and staff assignments and departments and things like that. That's just what you do. That makes good sense. But then you see people who have been siloed in one career in one sort of department forever. And I'm like, wait, that's a thing? Really? Yes. Yes. Um, because we know high-performing companies, high-performing sort of things will rotate people around. And it's like as soon as you get good at one thing, you've had to learn how to do something else. That's right. But the next thing you do is informed by all the other staff positions and command positions and duty assignments that you've had. Yeah. Um, and I'm like – why that's what that just makes sense y'all right um until you hit into big corporate world and like wait a second you've been like in the same job for like 10 years yes. and i'm not trying to say that in a bad way because it's actually right. the environment that supports that right, right. 
But I think if you ask most people though, because this is a common thing, right? I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next. Like so many people struggle with personal branding, imposter syndrome, and various forms of identity crisis because of that, because they're like, well, I am a marketing director. I'm a people ops person. And so if you feel like you're doing that one thing, um, it becomes a prison instead of a constraint that inspires creativity, right? So drawing that distinction, I think, is really important because I think it's the reason that people often feel stuck and they want to do something else and they don't understand that like it's a prison of their own making at any time. They can say, you know what, I'm going to try this. And it doesn't mean you have to change your title on LinkedIn. It just means you have to try a thing. That's what I love about your approach is that it's like encouraging folks to get into action, try something and finish, and like generally lowering the psychological stakes around evolving who you are. Evolving who we are indeed. Um, I know this dovetails with a lot of your work in that, um, you know, when we start thinking about making these evolution decisions, I think we tie in three factors that make them super hard, right? Those Mm -hmm. three factors are high stakes, right? We make a decision high stakes. The second factor is we make it non-reversible. And then the third stake is we make it non-recoverable. Ooh. Yes. Right. A lot of people think the, the second and third are the same, but they're actually not. Right. Yeah. Um, and so unless you're like, I don't know, a Navy admiral or an army general or the president or maybe a, you know, doctor and, you know, with a specialized sort of thing, most of us don't have decisions that are high stakes, non-reversible and non-recoverable. Correct. Right. Correct. Yes. Um, and so most of us have fairly low stakes. Fairly reversible, fairly recoverable sort of thing. So to what we're talking about here is like, yeah, you're, you, let's say you've been in marketing, you know, for a long time, right? And you want to add some spice up. Well, you know, you can take a Lean Six Sigma course, right? Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario is like it's content that you hate, right? And it doesn't get applied and you decide that that's not the lane you wanted to go down. That's it. And I think you have to see that information as every bit as valuable as the like massive success. That's the thing. It's like, there has to be this welcome to all information. And I think it's uh, easier said than done to emotionally detach yourself from that because it's like, this is my baby. This is my thing. I want it to work out this way. And of course we all like are ashamed to try and fail publicly and that kind of thing. Um, But the truth is that it doesn't matter. And, and sometimes we think that we are failing when we're really in the middle of succeeding. But the only way you know that is, to your point, to be experimenting. And I think to change it from I'm launching a new thing to I'm trying a new thing so that I can gather information. And I think that attitude and that posture puts you in a position, to your point, where you can say, you know, I like this enough that I want to keep trying. What I learned is that that doesn't work. So now I can try this or wow, that was a miserable experience. Not interested. I can add that to my list of things I've learned about myself and how I work that I don't want to work in this environment or with this kind of person or on projects that require me to show up in a certain way. Absolutely. Well, 
And I'm going to dive in this, right? Lisa might be like, ooh, I didn't want to go there, but we'll see. Um, you'll be like, <laughs> you know, what I've noticed, especially amongst women in our society, how we socialize women, right? Is you yeah. get to your mid-career where they're like, I actually don't know what I like. Yep. I don't know what fires me up. Yep. Um, and depending upon where you are in American strata, right, you might come from a community of color where like, the whole idea of you getting to choose what you want is really not there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's go there. Yes. Um, I'm happy to go there. And so, thank you. Um, sometimes people don't want to be dragged into that conversation with me. Um, and so I'm, you notice that so much of the advice around just try a thing and do what you love. And sure. it's like, but what if you actually don't know? Yep. Because your entire life has been oriented around being a supporting character in someone else's story. You know, Charlie, this is, um, first of all, it's a very important conversation. So I'm actually glad you brought it up. And it's not something that I'm afraid of at, at, all, as, at all, because so often I get black women, especially, but women of color more generally, and even white dudes being mm -hmm. like, you know, I just appreciate the way you show up. Like you've given me the confidence to do my thing and to stop overthinking and writing all this stuff in notebooks and never shipping anything. Um, but you're right. So... I know it gets so woo-woo to tell folks they got to do mindset work first, but what you're saying is why you got to do mindset work first. Even if somebody lays out every single step that you need to take to be as successful as you can imagine being, you absolutely will not do it if you don't do the mindset work. Because my experience is that you can't outperform your self-concept. And to your point, if someone from your family of origin or culture or just society's general script for your sex, gender, race, culture, is that you're supposed to be in a supporting position of someone else's dream, that you were supposed to be a supporting character in someone else's story then you don't even have the mental real estate to think, what do I want for myself? Because your entire orientation is toward how you help someone else bring something to pass. So I think the mindset piece is the first piece of that. Um, but also, I think this, this reinforces the idea that you've got to be comfortable learning. You've got to say, like, I am going to make learning a life long commitment for myself because you may not even have the rich uncle who can just toss you $250,000 to do a startup. So that means your whole orientation has to be completely different toward how you think about what you want to try, uh, what happens when you succeed, what happens when you fail. These thought exercises are worth doing. They're not a waste of time because oftentimes you will begin to see your shadows, you begin to see your insecurities, you start to realize you have certain beliefs that are not real. Like someone told you that, your grandma told you that 20 years ago, but she was basing that off of her history. Like we have to turn all of the periods into question marks at some point so that we can get clear about what it is that, that we want to do. And, and I propose that we can't know who we are without being in action. Like you can't meditate your way to the discovery of who you are. You have to try and fail and try and revisit and try. It's a circular process, but it does eventually lead somewhere. You and I share that thing that we got to be in action. You know, if you read like, um, oh, which one? Stumbling, stumbling on happiness. Stumbling happiness, happen yes. That's a good right. Um, yeah. I can't remember if it's Richard Taylor. Anyways, we'll put it up in this in the show notes. But the main thing, if you read that book, that's sort of, it's sort of depressing. 
Because at the end of it, what you learn is that actually we are terrible about predicting what's going to make what us happy. Make us happy. That's right. We yes. are super bad about that, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you have to experiment. You have to do things. What I tell many people is, you know, sometimes the best thing that we can do is pretend like we're just dating things. Right. We're dating things that might like, I don't know if I'm going to like pottery, but I'll date it and see. Right. If it turns out that after that second date, we don't want to go forward, then like any other day, it'd be like, no, I think we're done here. Right. Yes. Yes. And sometimes the courage point is just to be open to dating the thing. 100%. Right. Yeah. Let the outcomes go. Like you might discover that, I don't know, like you thought you liked X, you thought you liked pottery. But you dated enough things to figure out, like, who knew you were a mountain bike enthusiast? <laughs> you, you can't know that, right? Especially if you're just trying stuff trying. when you're in your thir- late 30s or 40s. Like, if you didn't grow up around that, you can't know that it is almost like you have to treat yourself either like you're dating things or like you might your kid, right, who's never tried some things. Because some of us grew up with such a limited number of options yes, that we just weren't exposed to things. Yes, Right. And so it's like, it's like making your kid go to the zoo and making your kid go try gymnastics is like, none of those were available for me. So I got to like go through this whole rechilding thing all over again and just be like, I don't know, I'll give it a shot. And if I don't like it, I have real world evidence that it's not my jam. Yeah. Cause I think the way you experience those things tells you something about yourself. I mean, I find that the best leaders and the people that I consider most successful in the sense that they are being paid very well to do work that they love and they are gratified um, are people who are just like extremely self-aware. Like they have so much clarity about who they are and where their boundaries are for certain things. Like this is too many Zooms in one day for me. So this is my maximum. Um, no, I don't like responding to email on Sunday morning. So this is what I block. Like they just create um, these spaces for themselves to thrive, but they didn't get there by journaling or meditating or reading about it on the internet. It's because they have this rich tapestry of experiences to draw from. And then they can go, well, because of this, I can infer that and I can run thought experience experiments based on an actual experience. And that makes me more effective. I also think it heightens empathy, right? Like it, it deepens your ability to connect with other people because sometimes I have an experience and I'm like, well, I didn't like that, but I can see why someone else would. So now I'm better at storytelling and marketing and connecting with other people just because I had an experience that was new to me. Yeah. Well, this is kind of the Indian food thing. I have a friend who's a foodie, Corey Huff. Everyone, not everyone, a lot of people know Corey. And for the longest time, he was like, let's go do some Indian food. And I was like, look, man, I've, <laughs> I've tried enough examples of Indian food. Right. That at this point, it's only confirmation. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I've, I've, I've wanted to love it. Right. <laughs> I've gone to all the places. Not a jam. Right. Um, I can see, to your point, I can see why other people love it. Right. But also know that I don't have to love it. Right. Just like I'm like that. I live in Portland. There's a lot of different variations of art and all sorts of things. And I can look at a piece on the wall and be like, you know what? I can see why other people would love that. I can see what would would get them on that. It's not for me, though. It's not on my wall. 
Yes. I can simultaneously appreciate the arts culture that we have here. Yes. Without being the person who buys or consumes or is into the art in the way that it shows up here. That's right. Um, so my tax dollars and my personal dollars will go to support that, even if I never buy any of the pieces or have any of them hanging on the wall. Just That's like right. I support so many different things that I would never actually want to be a personal collector for or personal sort of listener for whatever the thing is, because it's just important that we have this rich tapestry of things for other people to, of to find. Course. Yeah. And there's value in that. That's a form of like intellectual and creative diversity. And that's really important. I mean, even I find that in, in leadership, this is also really important because the way I manage practically everything, my time, my energy is so different than the way people on my team do, which is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, you know, some of them are like up at five 30 and doing the yoga and then the green tea. And meanwhile, I'm like, it's seven 45 and I'm like, what day is it? <laughs> so it's like, but, but there's a reason for that. And so you have to come to see those differences as valuable instead of an indication that you should diverge from someone. And so I think, you know, having those mixed experiences is very similar to that. Well, you mentioned previously that good leaders and high performers um, draw from their tapestry of experiences to figure out what works for them and what mm -hmm. does not. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where things like burnout and the melancholies and things like they suck when you, when you're going through them, but they also teach you a lot about what's not working. They also teach you a lot about the things that have to change. And so I know you had a, evolution, let's call it, around <laughs> your your approach to time management and effectiveness and productivity after yeah. your burnout. So pull us into that story, kind of what led you there yeah. and what you learned from it. Well, part of it was that um, my definition of success was flawed. And I was basing success on outcomes rather than processes. So that was the first problem is that to me, I was only successful if I was achieving another thing. And part of the challenge was that because I was so achievement oriented after one thing was finished, I just wanted to move on to the next thing because there was always an overlap of things anyway. So there wasn't even time to say, ah, job well done. That actually went the way we hoped. It was like, okay, I'm 20% on, on the next thing. Let's go. And so when your professional identity and personal identity are intertwined, you're in dangerous territory because you start to feel like the outcomes of your work are the outcomes of you. And that when something does not go well, it's because you're not okay. There must be something wrong with you. Now you're digging into your childhood. Like, yeah, cause this is just like when I was in first grade and Miss Morris said, and so, uh, I was just on that treadmill and I, I had not yet understood a few different things. One, that if I wake up in the morning and give it my best and I move my body and I hydrate and I love on the people I care about and I move 1% closer to being a better version of myself, then I've won the day. My version of winning had to completely change. So that was part of it. Um, the other part of it, was 
a sense that I was never going to have enough time to do all the things I wanted to do. And so I was just doing too much. So I was working too many hours. I was neglecting entire parts of my life and my identity, even though I know from observing myself that my best ideas come to me when I'm in the shower, when I'm outside, when I'm at the botanical gardens, when I'm doing something completely mundane and unrelated. So what that means is that that time has to be baked into my life because my magic often shows up in unexpected places. So basically I had all of these projects going at once and I felt like I couldn't quit because if I quit, then that means I'm a quitter and a loser. This was the basic narrative of this time. And then I just hit a wall. Like I woke up one day, I've never been like a, I'm just going to stay in bed all day kind of person ever. And that day I got out of bed and I went to my sofa and I collapsed. And I did not get off of the sofa until three in the afternoon. I was just lying there. There were tears, there were quiet, there was unconsciousness. There was just, this was just like the moment where I was like, oh, there's something very wrong. This is the alarm going off. I got to completely reconstitute myself. And so it was the realization that I got to change how I, it's not just time management, it's life management, right? Like I need more time with my friends and with my family. Um, I need to grieve. There were things I was actually sad about and I was funneling all of that grief into work thinking that would somehow make it better, but that's not how grief works. Um, so I had to like, it was like having a ball of yarn in five or six different colors that's all tangled together. And I had to spend a full week and a half being like, what is that? This is red. Why is the red and blue tangled? Okay, let's untangle these. Oh, the red is physical wellness and hormone balance and sleep. And without that, of course, my energy levels are low and my mood's all over the place. Oh, the blue is like time with other people. I don't get that because I'm working all the time. And I feel like if this is not a productive work thing, why am I talking to you? Oh, I need like unstructured social interaction. Okay. What is the green? Oh, the green is like time alone. That's not brainstorming work stuff and work, work, work. So once I untangled that, it was like, well, Lisa, what are your values really? Because I think there's what you say they are and what they actually are. I did a time and money audit. I went through my bank statements for six months and I went through my calendar for six months and said, where'd you spend your time and where'd you spend your money? Because that's the real reflection of what your Mm -hmm. values are. And I quickly learned like, oh, oh no. I say I value these things because it sounds cute, but that's not what I really value. And, you know, Charlie, from there, I just had to have some hard conversations with myself And I had to decide I was going to build new habits. I couldn't overhaul my life in a weekend. You know, I I didn't go to a Tony Robbins seminar or anything dramatic. I was just like, what are the simple, small things I can start to do that move me in the direction of those values? And that's what led to me rethinking the time management piece. But it was just really hitting a wall. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that story. There's, There's so much there that we can unpack. Um, I'll do a little plug here in the sense of like, um, in start finishing in chapter 10, um, you know, the main point about chapter 10 is reminding people to make space after a project is done. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if you do a big project, it, there's a, there's a project shaped hole that has left you. Mm-hmm. 
But if you just fill that back in and slide into the next one, you don't process those changes. That's right. And you just stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. You don't learn. You don't leverage. You don't breathe. And it, that has a toll. That's right. Um, so your story sort of highlights that in that sense where I'm like, yo, like if you spent the last six months working on this project, like you could take a week of idle time. <laughs> Right. To process, to like garden, to like celebrate, to debrief, to like do nothing, to catch up with all those people that you put off. Yes. Yes. Right. Postmortems are so important. They're so important. But even if people don't do the postmortem, I'm just like, maybe you can just have like some fallow time. Yes. Right. Um, Before you jump into the next thing. Such an important point. Mm-hmm. And the other part that you brought up, and this is why I'm on this sort of, I'm in line with Gandhi's quote of action expresses priority. Ooh, yes. Oh my goodness. And people don't like that one, but I extend it and they don't <laughs> like it. But you, but you, you extend it as like your schedule expresses priority. Okay. But it does though. Like we make time for the things that are important and we make excuses for everything else. And I know people don't want that to be true, but it is unfortunately. And, and look, the only way I can say that is because I have grown into a new space of discipline. I mean, I remember saying like, well, I want to have my dream body. And I would say that this was important, but my gym schedule said it wasn't. And at the end of 2019, I was like, okay, I'm done with this nonsense. Five days a week, non-negotiably, even through COVID five days a week. Like I'm, I'm sweating. I'm moving. Like that's it. There's no like, well, today, maybe we'll skip today and we can, no, it's either a priority or it's not. And sometimes people are like, how do you find time? I don't find time. I make it. We all do. Yeah, we all do. We choose what we're not going to do. (sighs) Yes. Even when we want to avoid the responsibility of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing. Um, when, um, in 2019, before the book launch, um, I was like, similar sort of thing. I was like, you know what? I got to get back to the gym because what I'm doing is not working. Mm-hmm. Full transparency, what I'm doing now is also not working. <laughs> right? Um, it's I, a journey. I, I got a plan in place for that. But we might talk about that and Lisa might call me out on it. But that's okay. In 2019, let's go back there. <laughs> um, in 2019, I was like, this in my own language has got to be a project. Mm-hmm. Which in Charlie's language also means it's going to displace something else. Oh, yes. Um, and so, what do I know about myself? Well, if I don't work out in the first two or three hours of the day, I'm not going to work gonna out. Happen. Yep. Mm-hmm. What else happens during the first two to three hours of the day? Well, that's when I get a lot of writing done. Ooh. So I can't do both. Turns out I can't write and be at the gym at the same time. <laughs> And so one had to give. Now, this is for an author who's leading up to a book launch, who's doing all the sort of other things. But the reality was, is like, if I am going to get to the shape that I want to be in mm-hmm. for my own reasons, not because of body shaming, but just for me, um, I got to give up those focus blocks. I got to give up that time. Which means I'm not going to get other things done. I'm not going to write as much. I'm not going to do those sorts, those types of things. Did you find it difficult to get to a place of peace with that? Or did you go into it with resistance? 
resistance like crazy. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I had to think, okay, with where I am in my career, my life right now, which is going to be better for me? 3,000 more words a week? Or um, shedding these pounds that need to go? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, for a lot of different reasons, it was shedding, <laughs> shedding the pounds and going mm-hmm. there. And on top of that, the other thing is, and again, I had to make it a project, I hired a personal trainer. Accountability. Accountability. But also, I'm like, why? So, Lisa, you know about it. A lot of listeners know about it. I got a military background. I got an army background. It's just one of those things. It's like, you know what you need to do. Just do it. Right. Right. Just do it. <laughs> and I'm like, why in everything else of all the things that I need to do? I'm so willing to recruit other people and pay other people to help. But when it comes to this thing, I'm like, oh, I got to do it by myself. Oh, Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's yes. talk about that. Right. Yeah. Um, what is that saying? What's my narrative there? What's my head trash around that? And I'm like, turns out with as much as a trainer cost and as much of all the other business support cost, it's a steal. Ooh, it is relatively speaking. Yes. Especially when we think about the implications for your quality of life. Right. And so it's like, why am I willing to pay this amount to buy my time back mm-hmm. and I'm not willing to pay this amount to buy my life back. Oof. Wow. Right. And so like when you sort of stack it up, I was like this, there's a whole lot of hair trash here that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, hella resistance, hella resistance to it. Um, and absolutely the right thing to do at the time. Did you notice that as you got and stayed into motion that the resistance reduced? Um, I'm going to comment and say, like, I realize there are people who have different physical capabilities and we're having a very ableist conversation right now. But what I will say amongst us is Lisa, like, look, here's what I know. You probably know it to be true for yourself, too. When have you ever gone to the gym and regretted it? Never. Even my worst workouts, I'm like, I'm proud of myself. I'm like that night, I'll be loading the dishwasher. I'm like, I'm proud of myself for going today. Same. I have never gone to the gym. I never worked out and regretted it. Yep. I have done plenty of other things. Yep. <laughs> and regretted that choice. <laughs> right. Yep. And so part of it is just understanding that the habits that I was in was not fueling the life that I wanted to live and it wasn't healthy <sighs> for me. So yes. I really had to create new habits. And at a certain point, we realized these types of changes are not habit changes. They are lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle changes don't come quick. This is where people fall off the wagon. This is where diets fail because people do a project when it's really they need to do a life change. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting point because I think what you were saying about the use of your morning is an important realization I had. Because I was like, oh, I have a certain number of hours and so I'm managing the day when really I'm managing my energy levels because most of us are oriented one way in the morning, one way midday, one way at night. And for some people, they like to do, they do their best creative work in the middle of the night. For other people, it's first thing in the morning. 
Some people prefer the gym in the morning. Some are just better in the afternoon. And and th- this is my problem with the like, this CEO wakes up at 5 a.m. every day. This is how you, it's like, no, it's learning yourself well enough and honoring the truth of those things and then saying, okay, maybe I can't do an overhaul, but could I implement one new habit every 60 days? Like once I get clear about what is optimal for me and stop reading business insider articles and just go like, well, you know what the truth is? I don't like being up at 4.30 at the gym. I just don't. It's not my jam. So what is it that I can do to create an environment where I can be successful at the things that are most important to me and then optimize and solve for that? That's how you get to a place where success feels good. Because sometimes there's this idea that like if we follow the rules, if we're miserable the whole way, like what's the point? Like that, that to me kind of defeats the purpose of this exercise around values that we're talking about. And so I think there has to be the idea that success doesn't have to be a struggle. There should be joy. There should be play. There should be wonder. There should be fun baked into all of this stuff. And to your earlier point, the more we lower the stakes, I think the easier it is to say, well, why don't I just try waking up at this time? Why don't I try writing for an hour every day this week? Just see how that feels. Just see how much I get done and compare it to another period. So then I have a mix of data, like this is objectively what came out of it, but then also this is how it feels for me. Because, you know, when we think about the regrets of the dying and people, when they get to the end of their lives, it's not, I wish I had done more. I wish I had sent more emails. I wish I had been more productive, right? It's it's oftentimes, I wish I had just relaxed and enjoyed it because it's going to end one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a tangential loop, but to come back, like I've been talking to a lot of our um, listeners and folks in our academy about you know, just the difference between understanding, thinking in terms of years versus seasons. I'm, I'm going to use little s seasons, but like, think about it this way, Lisa. Like, however many years you have in your life, like, let's count it four or five decades, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got four or five decades of years. Um, that feels a certain way. Mm-hmm. But think about it this way. You have 40 or 50 summers left. Right. Yep. Um, You know, if you think about experiences that you have with your family and friends, you know, you have significantly fewer of those. Right. Mm -hmm. So my dad passed in May last March. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Last March when we went to see him, he's had dementia. So it's one of those things. It's it's that inevitable stealing decline that happens with people with dementia. Yeah. Um, But when I went to see him last March, I was like. This is probably the last time I see my dad as my dad. Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Knew that going into it. Turns out to be true. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've ever had a parent age for dementia, dad is dad, you know what that means. Like, there will be a body there. But your parent's no longer really there. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, But even when he got diagnosed in 2017 or so, I was like, Mm -hmm. "Mm, that's like five to seven more times that I, that I experienced dad as dad before he passes. Right. I'm also at that age with my mom where I know I have, you know, a couple handfuls of visits and experiences of mom. Right. It changes Mm -hmm. things. You don't have the years. Absolutely. Right. You don't have the time that you think you have these discrete moments, these discrete experiences. Right. 
And I think that's what people going back to the dying, that's what they regret is that they, they are commenting on discrete experiences. Mm. Right. Um, and so this is where, you know, to your point about learning what works for you, you know, it's been a tough few months for a lot of different reasons, but mm-hmm. yesterday, um, so Sunday, we, I, Sunday, I bought a Honda Goldwing oh. because I haven't had a motorcycle for a long time. Look right? at you. Okay. Um, but yesterday <laughs> we're not raining. I legit, cause I got up at like five. I didn't want to be up at five, but I was just up at five. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I was like, hmm, I don't have a meeting until 11. What am I going to do today? Where did it were not for the fact that it started raining 30 minutes after my meditation, I would have driven to the coast, like had breakfast there for a couple hours, done my meetings from a library and written home. Right. Two hours later. Cause I'm like, this is a, like, it's a beautiful summer, yeah. <laughs> right? Get out. And that seems for a lot of people to be incredibly frivolous, except for one hard few months. But also I know to your point that that's where magic happens. Yes. Right. And when you look at what my chief job is right now, yeah, it's getting a lot of stuff done and making sure the team does stuff, but it's, you know, I need to have, you know, six, maybe 10 really great, 10x ideas that we can execute per year. That's it. Um, Where do those come from? They don't come from sitting on the couch. I will tell you that. That's right. (laughs) Right? They don't. No, they don't. (laughs) And so if my chief job is to do that piece, like how do we optimize our life and our schedule to do that? Right? Yes. Now I want to Admit, yes, I own my own company. Like, we right. have a lot of things going on. I'm an author, yes. consultant, all those types of things. So that sure. my, that way of thinking may not fit your context. But right. what fits people's context is like, what... There's a weird way of saying it. What is the magic that I'm accountable for? And what creates that? Ooh. Yes. Oh, Charlie, that's it. That's the thing, right? Because there's a lot of people who can't answer that question. But that's how you make yourself indispensable in any organization is by knowing the lever that gets pulled to create your magic. I mean, I think that's what the thing is. And and I love what you shared about your dad. I really love that you shared that because um, I created a recent episode of Behind the Brilliance about living eulogies. And I gave my parents living eulogies. And I was saying like, you know, we have to say all the things and be fully present. And and look, we live in a grief illiterate culture. So most of us don't get the gravity of it until we lose someone we love. But it's like, not to get all stoic, but remembering that everything and everyone, like this is finite. And so we, we have to be present and be in a state of gratitude um, because of that. And, and to your point, to also remember that we're human beings, like we're not meant to just build things and make things and then go to the dirt. There's something really beautiful and profound about just existing and allowing yourself to have that, even if you self perceive yourself to be this like serious professional. Thanks for that. And what I'm going to tag on to that is, you know, we talked about project world and career world. Like I think many of us need to be taking seriously the idea that um, the concept of retirement will not fit our lives. The common concept of retirement. Yes, that is correct. 
um, you know, the common concept of like you work for a certain amount of time, you turn 60, 65, you retire from that career, move to Florida, whatever that sort of thing is. <laughs> right. Well, and the reason I want to pull that up is because that paradigm of life enables and nudges certain ways of orienting your work life. Ooh, yes. Because mm-hmm. there's like a lot of pain and suck and just grind now. And then you have these years of your life where you don't have to do that. Yes. All right, folks, let's talk about that. <laughs> um, I know there are plenty of healthy 65, 70-year-old folks, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And especially if you live on the West Coast, it's different out here, y'all, um, when it comes to that. It just is. Um, 65, 70 on the West Coast is different than 65, 70 where we're from. Nick, it so is. Let's talk it's about true. it. It's right? true. No, it's facts. Um. And at the same time, do you really want to take the peak parts of your life and squander, not squander, um, use them in such a way (laughs) that in this later part of your life, you won't be able to experience them well? Nope. What if we think about the fact that most of us need to be preparing not for a second act, but for a third act, Mm -hmm. where we're going to be useful, contributory people in our society, because the way that elderhood is going to is, is shaping out is going to be dramatically different than a way of the generation that precedes us. Totally different. I mean, I, I see things all the time. I think about I was watching um, the season finale of Barry and one of the actors in the recap was like, oh, yeah, you know, doop, 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 doop. And I'm 70. And, what, and I was like, 70? Like, what? And we it's like some of us work as if we're running out of time. And, and I, I have taught myself one thing that's brought so much of my anxiety down is like, there are certain things that I may not have the bandwidth to pursue right now, or may not be the right fit right now, but 10 years from now, it'll be the perfect time for me to pursue that project. It's not all or nothing if you can't do it today. So I have a little repository. I'm like, this is a project that I would like to pursue at some time. And I trust that the right time will come. I will never be bored because there's an endless number of little threads I want to pull to see where they go. Um, But you make an excellent point that like people's careers are extending into 80 and 90. You think about Cicely Tyson and you're, it's just like, how are you still working at 90? But we all know that if you don't use it, you lose it. And so, you know, if you invest in your well-being and God forbid nothing happens to you, then yeah, that's what it's going to look like. And you don't want to be twiddling your thumbs going, well, I did all the interesting stuff. I was 40. I made the 40 under 40 list and I sold the company and I did, you know, and I became multimillionaire. Now, ding, I retired at 42. Like, okay, what are you going to do with the other 40 years? <laughs> it's like, you, you got to fill that with something. And so it's like, just breathe. Like you've got, you've got time. Just breathe, take it one step and one day at a time and lean in to the moments with the people you love, because those are what's going to matter. Precisely. Well, breathe. And, you know, I think I was reading a couple of years ago, Mr. Money Mustache talked about this too, because <laughs> as much as like the fire, the fire community, uh, financially independent, retire early Yes. Uh, for those. Um, that's a major, a major problem is that they retire early to what? Exactly. Yes. Right? There's and only have- so long you're going to sleep in and go to the beach and travel to Europe before it's like, well, you need, what else are you going to do? Especially since most of your friends are not retired early. They're getting up and going to work every day. So you're not going to sit around with them every day. What are you going to do? Like your life has to be about something other than like self-indulgence. 
So what are you going to do? But for us to be able to be the Cicely Tysons and to work at 90, we have to think, is the way that I'm working at 30, 40 setting me up so that I can be working when I'm 80 or 90 physically, emotionally, socially? Wow. Right? Yep. How's that going to play out? And if the answer is no, then it's like, okay, well, we, again, are still stuck in this paradigm of what our life might be. Right. And what happens when it extends culturally, socially, another 30 years? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it it just completely shifts your idea of what's possible for you. But I think it also is a reminder. One of my favorite types of stories on Behind the Brilliance is reinvention stories, Mm -hmm. where you have these people who are like, I was 58 and broke. And then I decided to do this. You're just like, what? How? Like, how did you not feel it was over? But when you think about it, this person could conceivably have another 30 years of creative juju inside of them. Um, And they, they have so much to offer. I think Western culture is so obsessed with youth and what's current and hip. Um, And, and I have a deep yearning to be around people who are 85, who who are 71, because the perspective that they have, the context they can offer you for all the little dramas that you think are such a big deal today, they're like, just keep living. It'll work itself out. You're like, but how are you so confident? You don't understand. This is terrible. I can't believe this thing happened. They're like, just keep going. You'll be all right. Yeah. I remember being 40. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. right. 40 years ago. And you're like, oh, okay. They're like, you got so much time. You're like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) I didn't make the thing. I didn't do the, and I'm not this and that. And on social media, this person has this thing. And what? And they're just like, just keep living. Because so many of the things, it's like that test, right? Five minute, five day, five years. Mm -hmm. I think it was Jack Welch, Susie Welch, who came up with that, where it's like, you got to run the test. Because some of the stuff you're obsessing over today Next week, this time next week, you're going to be like, what was it? I fr- oh, yeah. In five years, forget about it. Like if, if someone was to ask you like, okay, summer five years ago, what were you worried about? You would have to go to your journal to remember more than likely. So keeping it in context is a must. Yeah. Keeping it in context. But like Lisa, that tweet went viral though. Like I got to. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? I said to someone that when we die, there won't be a verified check on your tombstone. No one's going to care how many followers you had. That's not what's going to be in your obituary. It won't be like, here lies Jane, who was an executive and had 1.5 million followers on Instagram and had celebrities. Like, like we, that will not matter. That will not matter. I mean, I know the obituary exercise of like write your obituary is kind of cliche, but I think it is helpful from time to time to remind us that some of the status games we get roped into playing, not only are they not good for our mental health and our creativity, but they also are like not useful for where we're trying to go. Yeah. Yeah. For me, things that matter more than some of those are like, I have some clients and friends who, and this is a you know, very endemic to me growing up and who I am where like, because I'm a successful black creator and author, Mm -hmm. their kids get to experience that. Ooh. Right. We're just sitting around and it's normal. Yes. It's normal. That was not normal where I grew up. Probably not where you grew up either. Right. Yes. Yes. And so it's a name. They know that they have this personal sort of thing. I'm like, that makes a difference. Enough of those. Right. 
changes how communities see what's possible for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be a certain way. We can be all sorts of different ways. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah, I could pass on a few followers for that. 100%. I have this conversation with my mom often where her church members are like, well, so-and-so's daughter is thinking about moving to LA, but they're saying they don't know anybody who lives in LA. And then they thought of you, and but you've been out there and you're doing all right. And you didn't get into drugs and all the things. And, do, 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 do. and I'm like, sure, tell her, call me. Like, let's chat. Because I want this person to go further than I was able to go. There's so many mistakes they don't have to make because I made them. Um, but your point about visibility is an extremely important one because so often I was trying to be something I couldn't see, Charlie. I mean, and I'm sure you can relate to that where right. we're like, I look around and I see people doing it, but none of those people look like me and none of them come from the place I come from. And I don't have nepotism to aid me in this journey. How, am, can I do this? And like, I'm, I'm paralyzingly afraid, but I'm doing it anyway. And then yeah. somebody emails you or DMs you and says, thank you for existing. You inspired me. Yeah. Like, you're my person. I, I identify, I resonate, I'm cheering for you. And you're like, wow, like somebody's paying attention. And you really got to be at a place where you're like, if I help one person, my job is done. Because think about it. If a hundred people stood in your living room clapping for you, that would be overwhelming. But for some reason, when a hundred people clap for us on the internet, it seems inconsequential. So context is like really important with that. It's hugely important. And yeah, I was same place like i'm like look i'm not an athlete i'm not going to be at that level i'm not going to be an entertainer at that level <laughs> right i'm not going to be you know an actor right <laughs> like there's there's like four things you can be there's a basic template yes there's a basic template i'm not going to be any one of those that's right right yes. and this other template doesn't look like like how did they get there cuz the academics and authors and uh, startup, sexy startup types, and even people doing independent creative work were mostly like straight white men with mm -hmm. the occasional white woman thrown in for good measure. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, well, I see that they can do that, but like, I don't know if I can create that. Like, does anybody want that from me though? Or, or like, is, is my race or gender too much of a barrier for people to overcome for me to have what I want to have? But what we know is that the specific is universal. And if you feel it, somebody else does too. But it may be that they don't have what you have to put out into the world. And this is why it's important to show up and do your thing, even if you think nobody's paying attention, because you're always being watched. Like someone is always paying attention. And if your intentions are good, I think people can sense that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give the B side to that as well for some of us, right, is... We know we're being watched. Mm-hmm. Oof. Uh -uh. <laughs> you know where this is going. Oh. And there's a lot of pressure that can come with that. Yep. Right? And yep. so sometimes knowing that you're being watched limits your self-expression, limits how you can show up, limits because you, you know that, right? So yeah. it's sort of... It's tricky. I'm just going to call that out. Right? Yeah. No, I appreciate you calling that out because it is it is... Uh, a difficult tight rope to walk once you realize people are paying attention. I think early on, I thought I can just do whatever and say whatever because no one's paying attention. And I had a few situations that came up where I was like, oh, people are paying attention. And so I don't need to turn this into a prison for myself, but I do need to have a degree of mindfulness about what I want to be responsible for having put out. And 
So yeah, that thoughtfulness definitely becomes a thing that, that you have to be responsible for because, um, the internet does not forget. <laughs> we'll just say it like that. <laughs> the internet does not forget. And this is a unique burden that women and people of color, you like have to deal with when it comes to it. Cause you, you are yes. representative of something oh, besides yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's so, can I just tell you, it's so exhausting to me. And I just wish it wasn't. And I sometimes contemplate, like, if we took my same fact pattern and put it inside of a straight white man's story, this would be received in a completely different way. And there are all of these, like, political and identity management things I have to concern myself with. And um, But to your point, it's like I have to remember that there's something good that can come from that. And I try to carry the burden with a sense of grace instead of just being resentful and angry at people who cast that projection onto me, even when it's done in a so-called positive way. Because I'm sure you've gotten this too, where people are surprised that you have done these things. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Huh? Oh my God. Like, you must be the first of your kind. And I don't like that either. Because I'm like, what? Well, I'm going to say it because it's going to get you. Oh, but you're so articulate. Oh, that part. Ooh. That part. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like, do you not realize that that's not a compliment? Like, that's racist? <laughs> like, I know. Well, you that's know the thing. It's don't. like, it comes from, oftentimes comes from a good place, but it's like, oh, there's so much about your conception of who people can be needs to shift very quickly. Very quickly. And, and you don't want to... I think about this often that you don't want to have to be the person that's carrying the perception of everyone who looks like you in certain rooms. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately that is what's happening. Like I've had people literally be like, well, we should have more black women participate in the doop to doop to doop. Cause you were fantastic. I'm like, we're not a monolith though. I can't speak for who comes behind me. Even if she looks just like me, even if he, if he looks like me, that has nothing to do with me. I'm showing up here to be the fullness of who Lisa is. Um, and I would appreciate it if going forward, you treated all of us that way. But I, uh, Charlie, I just don't think we're there yet. Honestly, we're not, I don't think no. we're there yet. Well, and I'll just to be 100 on this one, like even to on today's conversation, in today's conversation, I was like, there are certain conversations we can steer that would highlight this particular conversation. Right. Right. But I'm like, I don't know. Does Lisa fill up for that today? I'm always up for it. Yeah. Because well, but, I just, you know, I, but I understand why people aren't though, where they're just like, can we not like, can we just talk about my work? I know there are sp- people who are like not engaging because they're tired. They're frustrated. They're resentful and they literally will not engage. I respect it. Cause mm-hmm. I completely understand where it right. comes from. Um, but I also think that unfortunately there's still a lot of ignorance, you know, it's not malicious. People just don't get it. And so we need to articulate why it's problematic to say these things, why they sound ignorant and racist a- asserting this to someone. Um, and that there's a way for you to compliment someone's body of work or how they show up without implying that they're a unicorn or the only, or that it's even more remarkable because they're black and black people can't do things like that. So yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I, you know, like I said, I respect and appreciate people who are just like, I'm done with that because it's not fair. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't, I don't mind the conversation cause I just think it's necessary. 
Yeah. Well, and what I want to make room for us all is that this can be today, right? I'm just not there today. Um, yes. Especially given, you know, some rulings coming down where we are in the United States. Sometimes you could just be like, I, nah, can, can we just not today? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> right. Maybe let me get a little bit more sleep. But today, like, I don't need that additional layer on top of the conversation, you know? Yeah, I completely get that. And I also think some of it is like safe spaces, right? Do you have a space where you feel like you can talk about it candidly? Mm -hmm. Um, Because now I I will be honest, like if you were a straight white man asking me the same question, I probably would have been reluctant (laughs) because I don't, one thing I don't take kindly to is gaslighting and like asinine questions about race and identity. Now that I don't do. I'm like, uh, let's just talk about projects, actually. Like, let's not and say we did, because this doesn't feel good to me. But I think when you're having the conversation with someone who understands it and is displaying a level of empathy, um, it, it's easier because it's like, okay, this person is not holding me up as a like zoo animal to study or demanding that I account for everything black people are doing. Um, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. It's just like, let's just talk about it. It's like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Let's just talk about it because yeah. oh, the, the monolith, Ooh, that's a whole <laughs> conversation for another day. <laughs> oh, many conversations. Um, <laughs> I want to loop back around to something and sort of bring us home, because um, clearly you and I can talk about a lot of things. <laughs> um, what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself after your company got acquired? Ooh. Wow, so many things. Um, that... The things that I, uh, that, that at the time I was ashamed of and embarrassed about and suppressing were the things that would create the career that I wanted. I thought, well, you know, like I love to read and I'm always reading. I need to read less. It's just too much. Um, I love dreaming up project plans and putting them together and thinking, what if we do this and do this? Like, I need to do that less. Um, I need to play one instrument instead of trying to direct the orchestra. When, hello, hi, leadership is one of the highest paid qualities in the world. Um, It really gave me time to reflect on the reasons I had gotten to that place and asking myself, like, well, let's take all the constraints away. In your perfect world, what would you want your career to look like? What is the, what does a great week feel like? Imagine yourself Friday at four o'clock and you feel great. What have you just done that week that gives you that feeling? And it was like leadership, creative work, um, solving problems. Like I'm not the type of creative that's like, I just kind of want to sit in my studio and burn (laughs) sage and see where the muse takes me. Like, no, like I'm willing to like roll up my sleeves and be like, okay, so this is a logistical problem. This is a philosophical problem. This is a strategic problem. This is a supply chain problem. Um, I mean, my undergrad degree was in business, so I love economics and, and business problems. But these are all things I was ashamed of, Charlie. I really felt like, I mean, again, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about conditioning and the expectations. I was like, I, I as a black woman should be less of 
this. It feels like I'm trying to be something I'm not. I need to be more like this because then people will accept me because that was the other problem I was running into. Mm -hmm. It was harder to make friends because people were like, she just seems like something's off. And it was like, well, you know what, Lisa, you, the only thing you know for sure is that you're going to spend your whole life being with yourself. And, and if you're not in your own corner, if you don't make peace with these parts of yourself, how sad will that be for you to have lived your whole life being your own adversary? You know, there's a certain number of people who won't like you, who will attack your work, who will do disrespect you, upset you, hurt you. So how about you not be one of those people if you're all you got? So I think the biggest lesson was like all of those little things that you think are weird and quirky and different. Those are the things you need to lean into because believe it or not, those are the things that are going to take you to the place that your vision wants you to go. I love that for so many different reasons. Um, and as today's guest on the podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which one resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Make a to don't list. There are some, your point earlier about how when you decide you're going to do one thing, that means something else has to go. There are some things in your life that are less important to you than things that you want to do. And it is important that you're clear about what's on your to don't list because that's how you create the space for what you're going to bring in. And that includes your actual action steps and your habits, but also manifestation. The universe abhors a vacuum. So you create it by saying, this is my to-don't list. This is the space I'm creating. This is what I'm inviting into my life. That's my challenge. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Charlie. This was fantastic. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Lisa. Go ahead and make that to-don't list or your stop doing list. Because you need to don't do things or stop doing things so you can do the things that matter most to you so that you can become your best version of yourself in this world. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, We'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.